Stop what you're doing and listen. It all goes back to listening. If I tell the truth, it's because I tell the truth. Then I think that's when real listening happens. Like, I just, I share my voice. Now, I don't think that's a bad thing to do. You can talk to people. You know, you can really have a dialogue. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be really hard. And we're going to have to work at this every day, but I want to do that. I listen to gain perspective. Listening requires a lot of humility. It requires you to sort of put your own worldview on pause. Those are things uh, that don't require rocket science. The more that we listen, the better we become. Every conversation we have is an opportunity to grow. Hey everyone, it's Jonathan. Thank you for tuning in to the Listen Podcast. I had a very exciting conversation with Tolu and Olivia. Tolu is the Outreach and Prevention Coordinator at the Center for Gender Equity, and Olivia is a chemistry major who is a resident assistant at Harstad. We had a very powerful and dynamic conversation about sexual assault through the lens of African culture, masculinity, womanhood, and religion, and we integrated self-care practices within that. It was a very interesting conversation. I gained so much from talking with Tolu and Olivia, and I hope you gain a lot as well. Hello, and how are you doing? My name is Jonathan Adams. Thank you for tuning in to the Listen Podcast. I'm here with two wonderful individuals, Tolu and Olivia, and they're going to introduce themselves on this week's podcast. Yeah, so my name is Tolu Taiwo, and I'm the Outreach and Prevention Coordinator at the Center for Gender Equity. And my name is Olivia Egejiru. I'm a second-year student here at PLU, majoring in chemistry. Ooh. Well, I want to... Thank you both for coming, and I want to continue the conversation of sexual assault and sexual assault prevention. And the first question that we're going to start off with is, why is sexual assault prevention important to you based on your identities in your community? I grew up in a community where females are raised to prepare themselves for what the reward is. At an early age, I really knew all about sexual assault and I was conscious about anyone who was around me. This wasn't necessarily because my family believed that, oh, as a female, I need to be submissive to everything or that a perpetrator has a right of way. It's just because we have so many struggles with our identities and less privileged and being a victim of sexual assault would just like add to the list of burden we have. Mm. Um, being a victim of sexual assault is very traumatizing and certain minority groups can't really afford the help that they need to get through that trauma. Some certain groups can't afford therapy that they need, you know, right after an incident like that occurred. It's really important to me because, you know, I feel like if sexual assault prevention is really prevalent, like, I'll be relieved that, you know, my nieces and, like, other kids out there wouldn't have to worry about stuff like this. They'll feel like they can be in a world where, like, they don't have to worry about sexual assault issues. Mm. Yeah, I feel that. I grew up uh, in a community and identify as being a Nigerian woman. And so we never talked about sexual assault in terms of sexual assault prevention or education. Mm. Um, so I think when I was growing up, my parents always said, okay, protect yourself, like be strong and don't get raped. But we never talked about it in relation to my like black Nigerian body and what that means mm. as well too. Um, and so we also never discussed toxic masculinity. I was thinking about this today, just thinking about how harmful masculinity relates to rape and sexual assault um which i think about like my brothers and they're lucky enough to that they were able to get the education elsewhere but we just never had these conversations it was just protect your body and never why and never how oppression plays into that as well too um and so i also think that when we talk about sexual assault and sexual assault education communities of color and queer communities are never focused on 
It mm-hmm. is definitely done around this white lens, I think, this white straight lens, which is kind of how society views, I think, just sex in general and relationships with that mm-hmm. sexual assault and consent. Um, and so I think that's why it's important to get it out to the communities that I identify with because we never are the main focus. We're never focused on when we talk about these issues. And I think you, it's also another, I like the way you use burden. It's mm-hmm. always another thing to look out for. Mm-hmm. It's you have to, again, do more work to get to be away from perpetrators. You yeah. have to do the extra mm-hmm. effort yeah. to watch out for them yeah. rather than the narrative being switched of how come we just can't, let's just not do that. Mm-hmm. Let's just educate ourselves. And that's very interesting that when we, you all were both talking, it's very interesting. It's like the family dynamic, it's so different mm-hmm. than the outside world when it comes to sexual assault and sexual assault prevention. Because I know from a Christian lens, it's protect your temple. Yeah. Your temple mm-hmm. is key. Mm-hmm. And that is very big in the black community. Mm-hmm. Protect your temple. Mm-hmm. And by all means. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's very important that it shouldn't be when you get to call relating those ideas mm-hmm. when you get to college consent is sexy like we should be talking about consent when you're like three and you have the ability to say yes or no mm-hmm. like i don't want to hug people yeah don't touch me mm-hmm. so i really appreciate the way you, both of you frame that mm-hmm. i also think too i'm even thinking about the protect your temple piece like we never talk about what happens when something happens to your temple and how to heal from that as well mm-hmm. too that's never a narrative that we hear i think prevention work can also like we, there's three levels of prevention work in that aftermath i think when something happens is part of that and that's never talked about um, before or after an incident happens or rape happens at least in my like personal communities that i see or my communities that I surround myself with. I think I hear that because of the work that I do, but never in my household or other Nigerian communities or other communities of color, oftentimes. I think I'm hearing more of that now, but not when I was growing up. And Olivia, you said something. What do you mean by after trauma happens, people can go to therapy? What I mean by that, because I've been around a couple of females who have been sexually assaulted and I feel like the experience I had was really different from them. I had to go for therapy like every Tuesday in the week to, you know, get checked and make sure I'm okay. And I'm like, wow, where I come from, stuff like that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. It's like Mm -hmm. if you're assaulted, it's basically your fault because based on my culture or something like that is like, oh, why were you out late? Or why did you dress that way? Or you should have been in your parents' house. Or if you was even a kid, it's like, you should have been with your mom. What were you doing outside alone? Or something like that. Like, they always look for a way to frame it up. Mm-hmm. And just like, and that's because I'm a black Nigerian woman. And I feel like if I was something different from that, the story would be different. Mm-hmm. So it's like this constant victim blame and person blame. Yeah perspective and action Mm -hmm. that disrupts listening yes i feel like and that leads me into like Mm -hmm. what is the best way to listen and that's number one it's not with the victim blame and person blame perspective what is the best for you what is the best way to listen i just feel like the best way is just to you know believe their story and support them in that moment that's all they need because you don't know what they're going through. Like, no matter how much you try to understand them, it necessarily mm-hmm. didn't happen to you. So you don't know exactly what it feels like. So just mm-hmm. like being there as a support system, believing their story in that moment and supporting them, it's going to help. 
and also by doing that, they know that they're not alone. It's already like emotionally exhausting to go through that experience. And it's going to be way worse if they're with someone who's like, well, you know, I don't know. It's it's not going to help at all. So just like being around them and trying to care for them in what way they want mm. would help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think believing peace is so important. And also working through any biases that you might have that might lead you to not believe. I think some of these stories mm-hmm. are important. I think generally and also when we look at uh, different communities as well, too. Because um, there's always, when we look at any, almost any narrative, there's always this disbelief almost, depending on um, your identities and maybe the identities of the other person might not match up. And so doing that work to not only practice believing and truly believing survivors and victims of sexual assault, but also figuring out a way to work through your biases of why you might not believe them is important. Um, and I, I honestly wish I had like a step-by-step. I was thinking about this, like step one to remove, and there's a lot of different ways to do that. But I think that's really key and it goes hand in hand with believing. And I think it's a level of like empathy. Honestly, yeah. It's like you have to have, and I think you said it clearly, you need to address your biases before mm-hmm. engaging in that type of conversation. Mm-hmm. It's addressing that which will enable you to have a level of empathy to connect, yeah. but not even necessarily to connect mm-hmm. because you won't be able to connect that experience. It's being able to listen and hear, doing both, listening and hearing the experience that individuals share because that's a piece of someone. Yeah. That traumatic event is an experience in someone's life. Right. And I think that's re- really neglected. People just see it as a moment, but you that's history. That that moment can't go away, you know? I just think it's really profound that you said the bias, because right. I think people forget about that when mm-hmm. it comes to different instances. Mm-hmm. How does this relate to your identities? You kind of brought it up a little bit. Being at home, it's kind of more the victim blame perspective. And how do you navigate that? How do you battle those conversations and really process that? It's really difficult, especially just like what Tolu said. It's not something that's really talked about. Mm-hmm. And in my childhood, it was really weird because, you know, I found out about this basically through the media and like in weird communication ways with my family. Like this is my dad like coming back in the evening. He's like, look at that newspaper. Mm-hmm. A four-year-old kid was raped. Do you want that to be you? No. So you need to stay indoors. You don't need to go outside and all of that because there's nothing we can do about it. If it's done, it's done. The highest thing is, oh, let's just say we're going to like Joe, the assaulter or something like that. But it's just really difficult mm-hmm. and especially like with my identity. I just feel like also with the way as being a black woman, we're normally like, you know, sexualized or something like that. Mm. So it makes it even worse in situations like this. Yeah. Yeah, I like, you were saying that and I was like taking those words out of your dad's mouth and putting them in my mom's because that's literally (laughs) the same or similar conversations we had as well too. Yeah, it's a battle and I think it's hard because I also want to understand kind of where that fear is coming from as well too. Like when you're a parent of a black daughter and mm-hmm. thinking through like not only just being a parent of a daughter, but all the racism that comes with being having a black child, that fear of wanting to protect them and wanting to be mm-hmm. like, don't do this, don't do this. And it's very, um, not even, might be reactionally, but very much like this is what you need to do not to get assaulted or to get raped. And I want to hold that fear because I think 
that extra protection. I think parents or guardians feel like that needs to happen when they're raising black daughters and also still holding the, the educational piece needs to happen. Mm-hmm. And again, not just with daughters, but with everybody in that family. Like I said, mm-hmm. like we didn't talk about toxic masculinity. We didn't talk about my brothers about rape. It was always towards me. Like mm-hmm. you need to protect your body. And it wasn't a conversation with the three of us, but like, this is also what consent looks like. I think in part because we also were raised in a Christian household, right? And that idea of just protect your temple, the end, we're done. No yeah. other conversation happens with that. And so I've been trying to do this, to think through and forgive, I think, my family for not having the conversations, but also figure out a way to bring that to my community. I think the educational piece. On Open to Interpretation, host and PLU communication professor Amy Young is joined by PLU faculty members to discuss a single word commonly used in the news, on social media, and on college campuses. Past episodes include discussion of words like advocacy, climate, protest, and gender. Listen to episodes of Open to Interpretation and other PLU podcasts by subscribing to PLU Audio on iTunes or by visiting plu.edu slash audio. I think what you're both saying, there's like another layer of oppression that's just added because you have to deal with the We have in social work like the micro, meso, and macro. And in the micro, your community, your home, your house, you Mm -hmm. have to battle with that identity and seeing, I think, the hardest part, I think you said, is seeing your brothers not having this conversation right. when it's very important for everyone to have this conversation because we don't, just because I am a man, I don't stop learning. Right. And I need to I need to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in the mezzo, the community, you see these, the newspapers, you see all these different things happen. And then you have the macro and you have this different, you just see what happens in the system. What happens to individuals, um, that one individual at USC, I think he got off. Mm-hmm. Like he got off for yep. rape. And you see that happening in the system and you're like, does my body not matter? Mm-hmm. Like how did, yeah. what does that do to me? So I think like, it's just a form of a micro, like a grand scale microaggression right, right. that happens. And I think in the family systems that y'all were saying, it just happens. And, and I don't know all of the microaggressions mm-hmm. that come along with it, but I know each one is detrimental for someone who's been through an experience. Mm-hmm. And so do you have any like, I don't know, not, I don't want to say microaggressions, but yeah, microaggressions mm-hmm. that you have to face in, in dealing with these conversations? Yeah, I crack, so <laughs> I'm just, this question always gets me mad. I, this conversation gets me mad, but I think we crafted this question and I crafted it specifically because I was told in college by f- people who I considered friends, so I don't now. And I think a couple of men in grad school, like, oh, you're fine. Like, you're going to walk at home at le- alone at night and you won't get raped because black women don't get raped because black women are strong. And I think Ooh. that's something that I got t- told. And it makes me just even mad just thinking about this. Like, I can feel that in my chest. Um, and I think, like, yeah, I, so I am a strong woman. I consider myself being mm-hmm. strong. But I think when you see someone as a trope, so you see them as strong, a strong black woman or even mm-hmm. a sexy black woman, which I'll talk about in a minute. Like when you just see them as a thing, you see them as less human and less likely to protect them. And that microaggression, I think, comes out as well, too. Um, and I also think like what I just said and what you were talking about, too, like the stereotypes of black women in general. So there's that one of the narratives of black women is that Jezebel narrative, like hypersexualized, like black women want it, like we're so sexy and that's the only narrative that's often put on on black women. Again, like these tropes. Um, and that makes it even harder too because that adds to that like black women were asking for it or like black women, like they enjoyed it or that like awful narrative. And so when we talk about believing or listening, like that microaggression or that, I guess, stereotype that gets placed on us, it makes it harder for people. So I think society and people that, 
kind of believe in those society's ideals to believe us um, and to believe our stories. And I think there's different, especially for women of color, like different tropes and different narratives that come out that come out as microaggressions that come out as people just not believing us. It's all tied. I agree so much with what she said. And like some microaggressions that people can just put out there. It's like, oh, well, I mean, it's not my fault you look so pretty. You're irresistible. Oh. Mm. Excuse me? Mm. What do I look like? Mm. A dish? Mm. Even that language like they're like just irresistible. Like another form of scene, I think. Mm-hmm. There's this color. level of exotification. Yeah. And this level of... Yeah. I can't remember her name, but she said uh, we should all be feminists. She wrote that book. Chimamanda um, Ngozi Adichie. Yes. 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 She, um, <laughs> there was a video talking, she was telling a white man how he cannot talk about racism. Mm-hmm. But I think it, it's that idea and that concept the way she was speaking, it's the same way that for sexism. Mm-hmm. I as a man can't be like, well, this is sexism. Mm-hmm. If this, this, and that. It doesn't really work that way. Mm-hmm. Because who am I? I'm the one that gets the power from the society because I'm a male. I get that dominant power automatically. So who am I to say and distinguish what is sexist, what is sexism? And I think people, when you when individuals start telling their story, they're like, no, I don't believe that. Right. Like, no, 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 this is, no, no, this is how it happened. Or, or saying comments like that. But it's like, you know, your reality is different mm-hmm. because of the way your status in society. So I think that's very interesting. Just like the micro, the power behind the microaggressions mm-hmm. that people don't recognize that they have, it's really detrimental for others that identify differently. Mm-hmm. And that just comes with constant awareness and constant educating and constant listening. Mm-hmm. So I think when you were explaining about grad school, mm-hmm. did that individual take the time out to listen to your concerns and how you feel, felt? And I guess in today, like here at PLU, how do you navigate those different conversations, maybe not conversations, but how do you navigate the different spaces mm-hmm. of those t- quote unquote tough conversations? So I guess like, how do we have those conversations with people who might not be willing to mm-hmm. listen? Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. I feel like that's tough because I think sometimes depending on who it is, part of me wants to put the energy to engage mm. in those conversations. Um, and I think when it comes to me, my personal story, when it comes to comments like that, depending on the relationship I have with the individual, I want to take the time to kind of walk through them, those steps that we just talked about, or even this conversation. Mm-hmm. Some people I have comfortability, I think, talking through this with them. Like, okay, why why did you think you why did you think you could say that? Let's break down all the words. Mm. <laughs> Do you not know how oppression is playing to us? And then I think for some people, I think for that individual, I just didn't talk to him afterwards because I needed to protect myself and my energy. And I struggle with those two ideas. Like sometimes I think it's worth taking the time. And sometimes when it's your story and it's your energy and it's your time, I just mm. walk away. I'm like, this is my story. You're not treating it with respect. Or you're not even treating, not even me, but my community with respect. I don't have time for that. I don't have time for that at all. Yeah, I agree with what you said. I'm a resident assistant in Hostad, and what I try to do is, you know, take my residents to forums or, like, lectures involving issues like this so they can learn about it. Like, that's my way of, like, trying to, like, Mm -hmm. educate others to be aware that this is real and this is happening, and I think it's really important. With people who are, like, difficult and just don't want to listen or engage themselves with issues like this, I try as much as possible to avoid them Mm -hmm. and be in a safer space where I know people Mm -hmm. can accept me for who I am and believe my story. So just, like, dissociating myself with negativity Mm -hmm. is, like, key. Mm -hmm. That's what I do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And as we continue to talk about oppressions in the workplace, at the university, and outside, how does the constant homophobia, racism, transphobia, ableism, sexism, like the list goes on, Mm -hmm. how does that play a role in sexual assault and sexual assault prevention? With homophobia, it's really annoying, I would say, because, I mean, they're not the norm. It's not like they're not heterosexuals. They're not attracted to people of the opposite sex. But for some reasons, like, when someone, like, learns, like, oh, he's gay, they're like, oh, my gosh, he's gay. Wait, I need to go outside. I mean, Mel, what do you think he's going to do to me? And it's like, well, you don't think about that when you're with females, like, or with mm. other heterosexuals, like, then why would you think that because he's attracted to someone of the same sex as he is, like, he's going to do something to you? Like, I mean, that, like, they're really, like, prone to sexual assault because they might be blamed for it and it can happen to them. There are some African cultures where, like, if you're, hom- if you're homosexual, they're like, oh, you know what? We're going to lay with someone of the opposite sex because you don't know what that feels like. And so, like, when you know what it feels like, mm-hmm. then you're going to turn straight. Yep. It doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. And it's... I don't know. It's just annoying because, like, based on your identity, like, how, like, your status in society, you're, like, more prone to sexual assault. And, Mm. yeah. Yeah. And I think, too, when we were crafting, I think, this and the questions, um, I was looking at statistics and it made me, A, think of the statistics of communities of color and queer communities but also just the why behind it like how oppression really plays so for example i think one of the statistics that we talked about last time is native american women are the highest that they're most likely to be um with women of color sexual assaulted but why too is also important so like thinking about how there's a long history of using sexual violence against community of colors for colonization purposes Mm -hmm. and how sexism and racism play a hand when communities of color are, and folks of color, and women of color specifically are raped as well too. And so I think about this question, and I, A, it's good to like definitely know and be woke about the statistics, but also the why is so important. Um, and I was also thinking about like my queerness and queer communities with this as well too. And I think you brought up a point of um, people being like, oh, you're queer, you don't know what it feels like to have like the normal relationship. like, And that's also one of the reasons why I think a lot of queer folks get sexually assaulted is that like well i need to prove myself and prove that you aren't queer and all that that gets wrapped around with that and there's a lot of violence against queer bodies um i think especially trans bodies as well too because of what society sees as not being normal and what we feel like people have to do to prove that you're normal people have to do to prove that they're normal because they i don't know there's just that gets wrapped up the normal stigma like what the heck is normal and i think on top of that it's those are the reported cases amen like those are the reported cases that are in the statistics and we don't talk about those individuals who are trans and don't want to report because of their identities we don't talk about the queer folks that don't want to report because they don't want to be out outed Mm -hmm. or exposed so it's a level it's another form of colonization and a level of exploitation that individuals have to deal with right on a constant so I, yeah right. and even like i think too like because i was thinking about that why people might not want to report and we talked about i think Olivia and i talked about the believing piece but also think about like the act of reporting and calling the cops and how many of these communities don't get treated with respect or get killed when they're called for the mm-hmm. cops to help them too um and just like another added level of oppression with that yeah, yeah there was 
another video. I think I'm I'm out of school, so I get to watch these videos. Um, and it was a young man crying because he said he was sexually assaulted by a female. Like he said he was raped, and his friends were recording him, and he's crying. He's literally going going through, and they're laughing at him and saying. How can that ever happen? Like, mm-hmm. you're a man. You need to take charge. Like, this is not... And people's comments, because I'm just nosy, mm. and, like, reading the comments, and it's just like, wow, how can this ever happen? Like, um, me getting raped by a female? That'll mm-hmm. never happen. Mm-hmm. Blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, this individual is going through something real, mm-hmm. and it's being shrouded by this I, this maleness, form of maleness right. that is getting shrouded upon. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, yes, men can be raped, and... This is the stigma that goes along with it, which is not going to be reported right? because they don't want to be seen as, quote unquote, weak or mm-hmm. not dominant or whatever the dominant society's rule for men are is now. Right. So I think that the level, the layer, the constant layers of oppression, this is disgust. Mm-hmm. It's a disgust. Mm-hmm. So we kind of talked about some of the barriers that the community faces. But like in school, like maybe we can bring it back to an educational perspective, maybe here at PLU or when you went to high school or elementary. What was the conversation about sexual assault and or prevention? How did that work? I'll be honest. The only place I've actually like had like a real conversation about this is here at PLU. Is it within a specific space, a classroom? Mm, a I mean, person. <laughs> I can't clearly remember, but I would say if I'm talking about space, it should be the Center for Gender Equity because, you know, I'm usually there. And just in my dorm, in my wing, because I lived in the social action and leadership wing. So, you know, we get to talk about these difficult topics. I think the first time I talked about these topics was in my undergrad. And I think it was actually, it wasn't, I think it was part me taking classes and part reactionary with one of my friend's experiences too. Because I think we were looking at each other like, elementary school, (laughs) when did we ever, we never talked about that. And I think both in our families, but also in the education system as well too. And how can we continue to do prevention work from a social justice framework? This is really difficult Mm -hmm. because when we talk about social justice, most people think about the big eight identities. Mm. Sexual assault isn't part of it. Mm-hmm. And we're doing this underneath the social justice framework. I would suggest, you know, education. That's like, it's really effective. It could be time consuming and like, you know, energy consuming as well, but it's worth it. Mm-hmm. I feel like it is. Mm-hmm. You know, having these conversations or forums for like people who are passionate about social justice you can be like, hey, there's still one more thing we need to figure out is sexual mm-hmm. assault and its prevention. Mm-hmm. And this is what you need to know. And this is why we think it's important. That's only we can do it through a social justice lens, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah, I agree with that. I think one of the things that we talk about in our office and like spearheaded by Jen Smith is that idea of doing this work from an anti-oppressional framework. I think thinking that through like thinking about the big identities and not even knowing them and understanding gender and sexism, but also what that might come with as well too. And so sexual assault isn't one of the big eights like you were talking about, but people don't think about that and think, A, like what does that mean? What is oppressions that come with this identity? And then like you were talking about the layers and layers of oppressions that come with the multiple identities. Mm. And so looking at that from that lens too, I think not only gets students and us talking about this more, but also keeps different communities, communities of color and queer communities in mind, I think. 
yeah. is what we're thinking about. I think we were also talking to you before we started, me and Olivia, like it's hard. Like we don't see that done often enough. And I think even with my work, that's what I'm striving to do. And I'm still looking for good examples that does that, that does that work well. And it's mm-hmm. a constant thing because mm-hmm. it's like the same situation in multiple faces. And it's like you can't address a thousand plus millions of faces, mm-hmm. but you can address the root cause. And I think, yeah. Olivia, you said it right. Like it's, it's constant education. It's like always constantly learning and not sticking to like there's this term called the social justice warrior and it gets on my nerves. But I think it's more along the lines of you're not supposed to say if you're a warrior for social justice, you're not supposed to say if you're woke, you're just supposed to do work. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to do the education Mm -hmm. part, but mm, no shade. (laughs) And how can all of PLU like share this responsibility? Like, how can each of us, because it shouldn't be just Center for Gender Equity mm-hmm. doing the work. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be just the Diversity Center doing the work. So how can all of PLU share this? I think they've already started it with the Listen plus It's On Us campaign. I think that's amazing, but it hasn't been reached out to, like, every single student mm-hmm. here, which is where we should be looking forward to. I mean... I feel like with the list, the It's On Us campaign, it's done a great job with trying to, like, narrow down to each department or, like, each um student or faculty group here on campus to be part of it. But for, like, having just, like, lectures, making faculty or, like, staff members be like, hey, this is an important event, and I think we all should attend it and listen mm-hmm. to it and know what it's talking about. It's, like, one step forward to getting there. Yeah, I think it's the biggest step, especially because we talk a lot about care mm-hmm. that's in our mission statement, mm-hmm. too. And that looks like a lot of different things. And care for the student and ourselves means everybody engaged, in, I think, in that conversation, and not just the D-Center, the Center for Gender Equity, not just the centers doing the work. Like, I agree with you, like, people are starting to do that and figuring out more ways to get involved is the biggest piece. Yeah, I just love the way both of you put that. <laughs> I can't put it another way. <laughs> I, don't know, I just really appreciate the work and the energy it goes into talking about what people don't really understand working with like people of color or min- minority identities. It's a lot of work because you're talking about yourself and you're like putting yourself on the front line. Mm-hmm. And so I just appreciate everybody in the It's On Us Listen podcast for really putting themselves out there and really taking the time to really invest in themselves to help educate other people as well as learn more about themselves and grow within themselves as well. So I really thank you both for being a part. Is there anything last minute advice or last words that you would like to share? Mm, I don't think so. I think we kind of said what we needed to say. All right. Well, (laughs) I want to thank the Center for Gender Equity. I want to thank Olivia and I want to thank Tolu for taking this time and shout out to Laser. Thank you, Jeff, hooking it up um, and being the producer. So thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in to the It's On Us and Listen podcast. Thank you. Featuring video testimony from 16 PLU students, faculty members, and staff, 
PLU's Listen Campaign is a collection of individual stories that provide multiple perspectives on what it means to be a community that not only embraces diversity, but also works actively in community to provide social change. Learn more at plu.edu listen. Thank mm-hmm. you.